why is it that most companies are not leveraging the benefit and the power of AI? Why is it not being beneficial in a way? We're spending a lot of money, but still the return on investment on this technology is not that great. And simply because, as you mentioned, the, the whole data strategy, the whole analytic strategy, the whole strategy around how do I utilize this technology in a better way? Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind, Machines and the Gradient Descent. Thanks that you tuned in again to spend a little bit of time geeking out over the AI community, the relevancy of human and technology and the craziness of corporate life. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts for this episode. And today we are super, super excited to connect to Singapore to our amazing colleague, Michael Taylor. Michael is the AI Chief Data Scientist at the Rail Analytics Center of Siemens Mobility. He's passionate for turning raw data into products, actionable insights, and meaningful stories. He worked for quite a bunch of leading global industrial tech companies such as eBay, Visa, and still today he's working for one of the oldest German startups for Siemens. Blown away already by the intro, right? Let's jump right into it. Michael, thanks for taking the time with us today. Hope you're doing fine. And can you maybe describe yourself? Yes, um, thank you so much, Audrey and Uli, for having me. And it, and indeed a pleasure for me to participate in this awesome podcast. Um, yes, as you rightly said, I am Michael Taylor, currently the AI Chief Data Scientist at the Real Analytics Center in Singapore. And my passion is really turning data into actionable insights that can help our customers make informed decisions. This is what drives me every day. This is what motivates me. And this is what I look forward to on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, awesome. Michael, you it's blown away, right? Aubrey, we came already a bit of, you know, mixing everything together because, you know, you're such a, you know, such a, a bright and, and great guy. And it's super dense, I guess. You've seen, you know, from Munich, uh, spent time in Munich, right? And you spent time now in Singapore, right? And given the current times that you have, right? When was the time that the last time had a digital detox? Is that especially needed in current times? Um, it's a good question. To be honest, I think it is necessary in this current climate, but also in the current climate, especially for somebody like me, uh, far away from my from my family and close friends, in a way. So um, this COVID, the pandemic at least, and what is how it's impacting lives globally, making it very difficult at least to detach yourself from the internet, from social media. Because, you know, you want to keep abreast and updated with, with, with friends and families to see what is happening, how they're doing. So it's, I think, very difficult. But what I will say is that I think um, it is necessary. Sometimes, I think at this time, it is really necessary because um, during the pandemic or during the, the lockdown, you know, I'm, I know, I tend to spend a lot of time with my kids at home. So this, this gave me a, a different perspective, at least, that's... I know they are at home. I have to support them with schoolwork. I have to do my own job as well. So there is always a time where you need to detach yourself from all of the the things that you do on social media, on the internet, just because you know you want to concentrate and just be present. You know, at at the moment, 
in it. So I think it's difficult, I would say, but um, I think it's necessary. Yeah. Have you have you done the digital TikToks? So, uh, you know, I have two kids and unbelievable. I try to, you know, in, uh, somehow get them motivated. It's like, hey, let's do a digital detox. And they're, you know, crazy. They just, <laughs> they, they just looked at me and said, like, are, you, are you crazy, right? We are 12 and 15 years old kids, right? So, and it's unbelievable for them to, you know, if I'm not, you know, restricting entirely digital detox. How do you cope with the family? Is there any detox time? Is there uh, engagement? Do you talk to your fam? <laughs> yeah, we really try to because like two weeks, ago two weeks ago in fact you know we came up with a rule that you know i'm on the dining table there, there should be no phones because like I'm, I'm almost very guilty you know because the in here in singapore like people walk in crazy hours like we tend to spend a lot of time in the office in a way and because we also work on the customer side so therefore you know my team you know the data scientists the, the project team they are always you know we, we have whatsapp groups so we communicate through this type of media on a, on a regular basis. So constantly people are asking for my input, you know, I need to make some, some decisions here and there. So I'm constantly on, on the phone. So therefore, like, you know, I'm, you know even when I, when, I, when I come home, you know, the work is still after me in that sense. So, you know, started thinking about, okay, ways to at least try to enjoy family time. So one, one of the ways was that, you know, anytime we're on the dinner table, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or, or, or dinner, you know, no phones at least, you know, just try to concentrate with the kids, with the family and have some normal conversation in that sense. And also the other rule that we started implementing also about two weeks ago is that in the bedroom, no phones allowed at least, you know, you can do all your phone stuff, you know, in the living room or in your study, but once you're in the bedroom, you know, um, no time to start fidgeting or looking through the phones. I think this is helping, I will, I'm, I will say. So it's still a long way to go, but so far so good, I will say. Right. Yeah, really taking the quality time with the family. So, Michael, you are AI Chief Data Scientist for Siemens Mobility. So, what do you think? Are driverless trains the future? I think it's 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 a very interesting question. Uh, something that I think about because this is a conversation that I know I'm, I have with my colleagues at work quite quite a lot. Something that my observation my observation is that yes, to a large extent, yes, I will say it is the future because this is where everybody is moving towards now. But some of these technologies or some aspect of, of, of autonomous trains, you know, have been around for some time in a way. Because if I look at, you know, um, the, the trams, the metro system, like for example, in Singapore, for example, the metro, especially the downtown line, is completely, is 100% autonomous at least. So, you know, you see these type of things. If you go to the airport, you know, you see some of this, the same technology there as well. But, you know, when people Usually talk about this, perhaps we are more focusing about on, you know, high speed trains, I will say in that case. So yes, you know, if we can, if we can get this technology to work at least for those types of trains, then I could see exactly how advantageous it will be because, you know, um, you know passenger demand is in increasing. Passengers are looking for short commute time now. And so a lot of things is changing. So therefore a lot of pressure on how to improve or increase your availability of trains and how to satisfy customers in that sense. So if we can get this technology to work, I don't think it will, it will have a lot of impact. So in a way, I would say, yes, it is the future and people are, we're making a lot of progress in that direction. Right. And do you think consumers or customers are ready for that? Like, do they trust the technology or do you see like some differences in culture or demographics that like the very young people like it a lot and the old people not or the other way around? 
Yeah, I think it's it's you know it has always been like this, isn't it? You know, when it comes to technology, because there's always a, a difference in demographics. And you know, if you look at you know currently when it comes to social media or other technologies, of course, the young people are you know the early adopters. They are the ones who are embracing it very quickly because our perception and you know we are we've been part of this digital um, lifestyle for a long time. So therefore, transitioning into those type of things is quite easy. Compared to you know my parents' generation and the generations before them, you know you can see that um, there's always a kind of reluctance when it comes to one they don't understand the technology and number two adapting to it takes time. But one thing I will say is that especially here in Singapore, I will say like the entire population at least you know they are they are very used to those type of technologies. The um, the metro system is I will say to a very large extent autonomous, so young and old. I've embraced this and they're looking forward to see exactly how the other lines can be digitized as well in that kind of in direction. So there are there are so many aspects of this. So yes, I will say people are ready for it. Some people will, you know, when you look at the technology itself, some aspect of it, in a way, of course, on one hand, you know, you want to improve on efficiency, you want to improve on availability from the operator's point of view. But on the other hand, you know, when people are thinking about, you know, the, the comfort, the security aspect of all these technologies. And so therefore, this type of things, this collision of it makes it sometimes difficult for people to be very wary about it. If you look on mobility, obviously, you know, the big fella is obviously everybody, oh, autonomous driving, right? That meets, that is the AI case, isn't it, right? Everybody, at least from a public audience, but obviously, you know, pushing more automation and more autonomy, basically, in, you know, in transportation is obviously pretty awesome, but actually, you know, it is is only part of the chain, isn't it? What you you folks do in, in mobility. Can you share a bit, what's your role in the state of AI in, in mobility from your perspective, right? And is there any any use cases you want to share with the folks out there? You know, you're working on, and you can share a bit of you know bits and pieces. Uh, what's on the broader spectrum? Yeah, and sure. You know, rightly as you said, when you look at AI, you know, there are so many applications of of AI. And when you look at Siemens, of course, with Siemens mobility, there are so many so many parts to Siemens mobility. And you know, on the one hand, we we are trying to develop this type of product. That were either supporting driverless trains, um, object detection, and those type of things. And on the other hand, you know, we are also trying to see because we make these trains, we sell it to customers, and the objective is that how do we help our customers to manage this asset in an efficient way? So for customer services, where I, I belong, because digital services is part of customer services, where I belong to at least. So the, our focus is how do we help our customers really manage their assets in an efficient way? So this means that the train, of course, as we know, have a very long life cycle, maybe 30 years, 40 years, and 50 years. So our goal is, or at least my passion is that within this period of time, how do you help the customer to increase or to minimize their life cycle cost? How do you help them to, to improve or to increase availability of the assets? You know, this might mean that can you know, try to predict the failures or the failure of the doors or the braking system or any any critical asset on the train, for example. So this is where like you know I come in to try to see you know, how we apply AI technologies, machine learning, analytics in general to mine through all this terabyte of data that a train is transmitting on a day-to-day -day basis 
whether it is you know key some of the projects that I'm, I'm currently working on at the moment is that um, how to develop diagnostic expert systems. And um, what that means is that typically one of the processes of, of the lifecycle of a train is about operations and maintenance. So the train is equipped with onboard sensors, with onboard unit that um, monitors many aspects of the train. So some of these are codified logic that says, for example, if the temperature exceeds the threshold, then you can trigger an alert or an alarm. Anyway, so these type of alarms are, are sent in a minute by minute, seconds by seconds basis. So the engineers will look at these alarms and they will try to understand, you know, what is the problem, what is the root cause, and what is the remedy? What do we need to do to fix this? But this process in itself takes a long time because we have to go to the train and download these log files and try to search through them and try to make sense of it. And they will have like troubleshooting guides, manuals from the OEM that tells them the different steps that they will take to reach the decision. So this takes a lot of time. So if you really want to optimize your downtime, if you want to reduce the downtime, meaning that the time that the train spends on the depot for maintenance activities, it means that you need to try to figure out how do you make this process an efficient way. So one of the use cases at the moment is that how do we apply AI? How do you apply machine learning? You know, how do you look at this type of technologies to find kind of patterns within these huge log files and look at historic data and automatically help this engineer to read its conclusion? So the idea is very simple. It's just the same thing like companies like eBay or, or Amazon will do in a way. So they, they will try to find those kind of a basket analysis where they will try to look at your transaction history and say, okay, customers that bought this also buy, um, will buy this. And then they will make kind of recommendations. So this type of idea is what we are applying in this context where we are trying to find kind of patterns in this data and in, in these huge log files. So in the future, all the technician needs to, to do is just take this log file, put it into the system, and automatically we make a recommendation on this particular pattern fits this profile. And because of this in the past, you've done X, Y, and Z. So therefore, you need to do this, this, and this to fix the problem. Very simple. But also challenging to do that. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, fingerprinting. Nice. So your current role is actually AI chief data scientist. How cool is that? Uh, that's a name, right? That's a super stoke. And I guess a lot of geeks out there would say, hey, how do you get in those roles, right? And what can one understand, right, on what means maybe a chief data scientist, but also, you know, what do you think, what's your perspective, right, on, on a data scientist? How do you go from, you know, starting doing passion for data and then ending up with AI chief data scientist? How cool is that? Can you share a bit and elaborate? Yeah, I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's a very cool um, title. I also like it as well. But I think the, the difference here is that, oh, you know, if I look at my job role, my focus, in, in addition to, of course, you know, when you have this type of roles, of course, that means that, you know, you are responsible for, for, for a bunch of data scientists, you know, you, you, you mentor them, you, you guide them, you take ownership of the analytics work stack in every project in a way. So this is at least very common, very typical of any chief data scientist role every, anywhere. And also my observation is that the responsibility of the chief data scientist also differs from company to company in a way. But in my role, you know, my, my typical task is one really understanding, you know, the, the business problems. You know, I'm working very closely with us, with our stakeholders, working very closely with our engineers, working very closely with our business analysts, working very closely with, with our domain experts in really trying to understand the business process, the maintenance processes, in understanding the, the, the life cycle of a train, understanding the, the physics and the mechanics of critical assets. Of, of this train and then translate these business problems 
into analytics problems in a way. Sometimes go one step further by developing quick prototypes you know, by myself and say, okay, you know, um, this is the problem, this is the, the solution I recommend, and then put that into a, a, a kind of a, a concept and requirement or description, which then I then give to my senior data scientist with the other data scientist and the team to then see, okay, how then do we de- deliver that? Anyway, so I am always the bridge between, or to a very large extent, you know, trying to translate the business problem into the analytics problem and coming up with a solution. How do we solve this? Because this is always the critical path. How do you solve this? What are the technologies out there that you can leverage very quickly to solve these type of problems to give us the desired result in a way? So one hand is managing the team. On the other hand, also very hands-on, which also I like quite a lot because I'm also doing a lot of coding, it's kind of a prototype, and also getting myself amassed in the business and understanding the real domain is something that I found very, very awesome. Yeah, awesome, yeah. So And it already shows, right, data science was the most sexiest job, I think, they, they coined it like three or four years ago, right, that you want to have. But it's I, I think it's also a bit of delusion, right? If you look in, I don't know, in corporates or in certain departments outside also the company and stuff like that, um, you see you now they put quite some different competences together. What the role of the data scientist, yeah, we have this data scientist, he takes care about, you know, integration of cleansing, about, you know, business understanding, he takes care about model deployment and quality inspection he t- about testing and stuff like that right so you have this unicorn right who does a thousand jobs right and it's I, I think for some reasons obviously you know it's a bit sometimes pretty unclear right what clear role requirements what kind of brass and ability the profile say data scientist has can you elaborate a bit of you know what makes for you a good data scientist what is that what you said like if you you know if you mentor in your team what is like this is where you see a, a great data scientist and what's the mindset associated with that i think it's a very good question i also like the way you framed it in the way that um you know um, we have a lot of expectations or at least in in the industry today people are you know um, looking at data scientists as unicorns and expecting them to be able to solve all types of problems in a way you know from analytics you know, the data science part, building the models to the engineering aspect of it, as you mentioned, the deployment, the personalization of the, of the identical models. You know, you know, for me, there is nothing wrong. I always say to my team, there's nothing wrong in trying to understand the end-to-end of an analytic cycle, you know, from business understanding to the deployment. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you mentioned as well, like, you know, along this process, different type of skills are required. And it is very difficult to find somebody that really masters the, the business masters, you know, model development or, uh, or understands a lot about algorithms and statistics and machine learning and AI, but also a master when it comes to an engineering aspect, the deployment, the operationalization of this type of thing in, in a way. So that is why for me, I think um, having a balanced team is always very useful because you can then find people who are experts in different aspects of this workflow and then put them together to solve a problem. So one thing that I look for, you know, when I hire data scientists, of course, Having a numerate degree is, for me, is a given. You know, you, you, you need to have the basics. You need to understand the basics. And also, it depends on the, the role that I'm interviewing for also determines the, the kind of requirement that I, that I look for. But typically, of course, you know, um, in, in, our, in our case here, you know, we, we program a lot in, in, in Python. So therefore, of course, you have to be Python proficient somehow to a large extent. But I'm, I'm not expecting that you have to be a super user somehow because these are, these are tools in technology and tools, something that somebody can learn. So I'm not expecting that you have to be 100% proficient in it for me to hire you. So, but typically what I look for is this kind of a mindset, the, the structured thinking, how people approach a problem, 
because this is some this is something that in my view is always missing anyway you know why is that important to me because in my experience i've been around i've worked for many companies i've mentored or managed data scientists for a long time and the perception is that data scientists are always they are, we are always focusing on the model building part you know um, we want the data we want a huge amount of data and you know we learn something about birds and um, cpt3 or xgboost and we just want to find a way to apply that and so we are more focused on this building the models but then when it comes to okay you know how do you generate insight from this how do you use this model for solving to to make decisions and you find out that people don't don't think about these things they don't understand this cons- this this part of it Anyway, so therefore, you know, this kind of a structured thinking, structured way of thinking through a problem is something that for me is very, very important in a way. And of course, the, the softer skills as well, which sometimes we also ignore, I find very interesting or important when it comes to communication in a way. So that is for me very key because in our example here, for example, in Singapore, we spend a lot of time with customers. You know, they, uh, they want to understand what we are doing. They ask for justifications. Why do you use SVM and not XGBoost, for example? So you should be able to explain this type of thing. So your communication should be good enough, but not only communicating and explaining to them what you've done, but also you have to communicate and try to convince your customer that your solution meets their problem or solve their problem as well. So how do you get them to trust your solution? So this, for me, these are all the different things that I look for. You know, one, your, your mindset, the way you approach a problem, you know, the softer skills, which sometimes we ignore, for me, is very important. And of course, the technical things for me is, is given, but I'm not expecting you need to be proficient in Python and at least also having a thorough understanding of, of the algorithms for me is also very important because most times people apply these things they don't really understand how does an XGBoost model work? So the underlying assumptions, does these assumptions fit the data that I'm using and the problems I'm trying to solve in a way? How do I balance this variance bias kind of issues? So they cannot optimize these things when something goes wrong. So for me, this is a problem in a way. Right. So it's super important for companies to find the right data scientists. But what is also very important is the corporate data strategy. So, Michael, what would you say are the fundamental pillars of a corporate data strategy? Or to put it in other words, how does a company really leverage its data assets effectively to make the business more sustainable? Um, Audrey, this is a very, very good point. Because, again, as I was saying before, like you know, a lot of people, a lot of companies, and back on this AI journey or adopting this, thinking about it as it's a technical, it's, it's a technology problem or it's a, it's a technology issue, in in a way. And that is why, of course, as you know, is that there's a lot of literature and surveys now being done to really understand why is it that most companies are not leveraging the benefit and the power of AI. Why is it not being beneficial in a way? We're spending a lot of money, but still the return on investment on this technology is not that great. And simply it's because, as you mentioned, the, the whole data strategy, the whole analytic strategy, the whole strategy around how do I utilize this technology in a better way? So for you to really benefit from this, developing the strategy itself, the data strategy, you, know, you have to understand you know, what are the business problems do I really want to solve? For me, this is the key. This is the first point. What are the decisions do I want to be able to make? 
You know, I have a four-point strategy that I that guides my thinking when I approach a problem or when I when I discuss with my stakeholders in a way. One is, you know, we need to understand what are the decisions that we want to be able to make. Number two, what are the insights that is required to make those decisions? Number three, what analytics can provide those insights? And number four, what is the data and technology required to provide the analytics? Anyway, so once you, if you're able to, to have answers to all of these, then at the end of the day, you have a, a proper problem statement. You understand the data that is required to solve this, the insight required to solve this, and together all of this then makes what your data strategy really is. So you cannot just go and say, okay, I just want to collect as much data as possible. <laughs> you can collect as much data as possible and just store them. But the question is, what do I need? And what, what am I going to do with it? How do I leverage this to solve a problem? In a way, in most cases, of course, we also hear people saying, yeah, just collect it and then I'll figure out what to do with it. I think it's a, it's a wrong strategy. You need to know what you need to do first. You, have, you know your business, so you have, to have the, you have to develop this data strategy in terms of what data do I need to collect and why do I need to collect this? In what format do I need to have this? And how do I need to leverage the insight from this to, sub, to help support the business? to make the decisions that I want. So this, for me, I think is very critical. Right, thanks for sharing. So Michael, you've already worked in very many different large firms and different roles. You gained a lot of experience. So which is the greatest lesson for you that you learned in the past and that you would like to share with the audience? You know, I meant a lot of, a lot of people. And one question that people always ask me is that, um, Is it, is it the right time to leave a company? I've seen many people approach me and say, you know, um, a lot of things, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with what is happening here. I'm not happening with what is happening here. You know, this is not right or there's a problem here. There are issues here. And there, so therefore I want to leave. So one of the, the most important thing I say to, to people or some of my mentees is that don't leave a company because things are not as you expect it or there's one or two issues here and there, or maybe this process is wrong, or I don't have this kind of a thing here. The truth is that you will find different forms of issues everywhere that you go. So if this is what motivates you and trigger you to be moving around, the truth is that you are going to be moving quite a lot into different places because there is nothing like a perfect organization or a perfect company. So this is one thing that I share. I've observed that there is no perfect company. Every company has some flaws and issues. So moving should always be motivated by perhaps getting new experience or learning something new. And this is something that I will say. But also, I think one of the key things that, at least in my in my lifetime, that I've experienced because I've worked with many companies. I've you know worked in different capacities from an analyst and you know, a consultant, a researcher, and all of this stuff. And To where I am today, I will say, you know, I've seen tremendous improvement in organizations trying to be data-centric in a way. How do they use data to make decisions? So this is one thing that I see that is common to many, many, all the companies that I've worked, either internally trying to see how they can leverage data to, to improve their own businesses or how they can develop data products, in our case, to support our customers make or manage their assets in a better way. So this, for me, I think it's very refreshing. Of course, as a, somebody who is very much into statistics and machine learning and AI, seeing that um, you know, this technology is, is going to stay with us for a long time. So therefore, at least you, know, you always find areas and ways where you can apply this in many, many companies to, make, to help them make decisions. 
Michael, thanks so, so much for your time because we are already at the very, very end of the session. But before we close this episode, we want to play authentic autocomplete with you. So let me give you for the closing five sentence starters and you just finish. So Siemens is? An amazing company where people make a difference. I like that. Data and AI is like? I would say data and AI is like food and human. Why do I say so? <laughs> no, food is very, very instrumental to the subsistence and development of people and humanity. So the better food, the balance that you have contributes to your longevity, your, your strength and your stamina and make you a better person in that sense. So the same way with, with data and AI, they're inseparable. As we all say, garbage in, garbage out. So if you want your AI technology to be super and good, then you need good data. Balanced data in terms of heterogeneity and variety of, of features makes your AI application very good. So this is how I'll make the parallel, I would say. No junk food, right? No junk food. <laughs> no junk food. <laughs> exactly, no junk food. What a nice comparison. So if I could invent a rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be? I think I will, I will go with what Uli said at the beginning, that you need to find a time to detox. Everybody should have a time to detox. I think I'll make that a rule and a law. At least every week, twice, two hours in a week to detox and spend time with your loved ones and families. I think it's quite important. Beautiful. I would go with that. Corona has taught me. Corona, one of the things that I have, that um, there are so many levels, if you want to be philosophical about it, I think one thing that um, I have learned of Corona, that life and humanity is really fragile in a way, that um, never take to, never take things for granted. Because in a split second, you know, the entire human race, I would say, was brought to a standstill. Economy was completely devastated just because of a virus. And we see how this has transformed and influences our perspective to, to different, different things, our priorities with our loved ones and some other things about the way we used to work. Now, at least people are thinking about working from home it's at least you know it doesn't make any difference whether i work in the office or not with the corona i think we've seen that it's always it's also easier or able we can we can work from home as well in an effective way and um, so i think this is this is what i've seen that corona has taught me that um in, in a more general way that life is very fragile and never take things for granted and try to live the life to the fullest and spend time with your loved ones as much as possible but i think this is really this is really key because you know, um, in the day-to-day -day activities, when things were okay, you know, the world was very fast. You know, we were on the fast lane and doing things and moving about, traveling quite a lot. And but this has helped us to maybe take you know, look at things in a different way and try to reprioritize our objective in life, which I find very interesting. I totally agree. Thanks for sharing. And last but not least, my personal superpower is. My personal superpower is, I would say I'm, I'm a very fast learner in a way. Um, I think this is something that sets me apart. I would say that um, makes me to thrive and to be successful in what I do. I'm quick to learn. I'm quick to understand problems and be able to figure out what is the best way to solve it. I think this is why I think in my current role is also helping me quite a lot, all this supporting my colleagues and moving very quickly in developing, you know, cutting edge solutions. Because 
for me, I think this is my job. My role is understanding problems and translating business problems to analytics problems. So therefore, this ability to really understand things quickly and to learn processes and business quickly and then translate that into analytics makes a huge difference. So yeah, as a fast learner, being a fast learner is my superpower. That's the skill of the century. Michael, thanks so much for the time, right? It feels like that is an appetizer. I could uh, obviously easily, we could talk now another three hours, but you know what? I, I'll, I'll keep it what we had in the introduction, right? Actually, you know, I'm, I'm super excited. Hopefully you release some kinds of weblog or sometimes interactive media or maybe release this, you know, 80 pages of, you know, insights corporate data science book um, eventually, right? Because it's, it's super interesting uh, from, from the way you talk and um, from, from, you know, the interaction uh, with you. And so uh, I hope really, you know, uh, people out there follow, you know, go go to LinkedIn, check out Michael, uh, what's, what's he's uh, sharing with the, uh, with the other folks. And obviously stay tuned because even in the ALA podcast, right, we, there's a lot more to come. Again, stay bold, committed and open-minded. And we hear it exactly at the next Siemens ALA podcast. Cheers. And thanks, Michael. Thank you very much, Uli and Aubrey. It's, it's a pleasure to be here today. And I very much enjoyed the discussion and looking forward to another opportunity to share with you guys as well. And also, I will take that with you, Oli, and maybe think about it more, but developing or writing a book. So that will be something, a project that I will think about and try to see exactly how to move it forward. 